Hello, this is the podcast for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, April 2015 issue. I'm Dr. Dean Schroffnagel, Senior Deputy Editor of the Annals, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Henry Fessler, Professor of Medicine and Assistant Dean for the Undergraduate Education at Johns Hopkins University Medical School. He is also the Medical Education Series Editor for the Annals, and was deeply involved in the April thematic educational issue. Dr. Fessler, at one time it was assumed that having a doctoral degree and a deep knowledge of a specific area was sufficient to be a teacher on a university faculty. Has this changed and how? Dean, thanks for inviting me. I'm not really sure it was ever accurate that all it took to be a university teacher was a doctoral degree and some content expertise. Students may have had lower expectations, but that doesn't mean they were getting the best education. But several things have changed to make expertise about a medical field be even less efficient to make you a good teacher in that field. First, the sheer volume of what needs to be taught has exploded. The number of papers on PubMed today is five-fold greater than when I graduated from medical school. Whole fields of medical science have been born. But it's not just the volume of biomedical knowledge. Doctors are expected to learn more than ever about communication, ethics, cultural competency, medical economics, public health, patient safety, health systems, teamwork, a whole slew of skills that society rightfully demands in physicians. But med school is the same length it was when the Flexner Report was written over 100 years ago. We've also learned a lot about how best to teach adults. The old med school of hours and hours of lectures is a thing of the past. Now teachers have to be strategic and efficient about what and how they teach. It's less about memorizing facts and more about teaching how to access and use them. Active learning like small group work, early patient contact, audience response systems, flipped classrooms, and simulation have replaced those endless lectures. These methods transfer less information per minute than a lecture, but the information sticks better. We've grown more sophisticated about how we assess students and figure out what teaching works and what doesn't. All of these changes have created a science of medical education. It's like what clinical research went through about 20 years ago. You used to be able to just dabble in it. Now you need an advanced degree to get up to speed on the latest methods. Medical education is moving in that direction, and this is creating new career opportunities for the clinician educator with the emphasis on educator. Wow. Training programs rely on faculty to teach and mentor program yet at many academic institutions, these clinical educators are not yet appreciated. They may do less research than their peers, and research is the main key to promotion at many places, and they may also have less earning power than full-time practicing physicians and therefore be less financially rewarded. Are these factors changing? I think they are, but slowly. And it feels particularly slow if you're the one waiting for your next promotion. In terms of promotion, there is empirical data showing what everybody knows. The clinician educators on medical school faculty get promoted more slowly than researchers. All of our institutions claim a three-part mission of research, patient care, and education. But if push came to shove, most of them would rank them in just that order of importance. Research brings new discovery of the world, prestige to the scientists and their institution, and indirect costs. For promotion, it also brings things that can be easily counted grant dollars, publications, invitations. Two things that need to change to put education on equal footing with the other two missions are pathways to promotion and culture. 
Most medical schools now have separate tracks with separate well-defined milestones for researchers, clinicians, and educators. Johns Hopkins happens to be the only remaining medical school that only has one track. Having separate tracks helps, but it's been hard to make the steps between milestones of similar size for such different missions. There's just fewer opportunities for dissemination of scholarship in education than in science, fewer ways to quantify accomplishments. Changing culture is even harder and slower. In business, they say that culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's true in medicine, too. I've been fortunate that my last dean invested heavily in a new medical school building, a new curriculum, and more financial support for teaching. My current dean teaches immunology to the first-year medical students, has breakfast with small groups of students, and never misses a white coat ceremony. These things send a loud message. But we still have departments that demean educational efforts at faculty meetings. We have RVU-driven departments that tell their faculty, oh, sure, you can run that course, but if you don't still meet your RVU target this quarter, you're going to take home 10 grand less in salary. That seems to me to be a perverse misalignment of missions. I think that cultural change has to come from the top. But, of course, it's generally hard for junior faculty to tell deans what to do. Well, what can be done at, by universities, departments, or divisions to reward those important people? How can they promote their careers? Creating realistic, attainable pathways to promotion is an important first step, but it's not sufficient by itself. They also have to provide faculty development opportunities to help people struggling on those pathways. For example, protecting time and providing funding for skills training in education or educational research. Recognizing outstanding educators with awards. These are cheap, and it's amazing how high an academic will jump for a framed piece of paper. They can protect or fund time for teaching itself, for curriculum development and course leadership, so that it's not just another chore piled on top of revenue-generating work. They can invite grand round speakers or sponsor symposia on education topics so that the field gets some institutional prominence. That helps move the culture. Or they can go all in and establish educator institutes or academies to support and reward the best educators and train the new ones. The basic point is that it's not enough to describe a promotion pathway on a website. An institution has to give its faculty the tools to navigate that path. What should fellows or faculty do to develop themselves as clinician educators? Well, institutions need to clear a path, but we faculty still need to walk it. And there are a lot of things that clinician educators in academic settings can do to develop themselves. The first and the most foundational, the most fundamental, is to learn to be great teachers. This is usually not taught during fellowship the way we teach clinical medicine or research. Most of us just pick up things by watching good role models. But many of our role models may be unfamiliar with newer best practices. And there are a lot more systematic ways to learn how to teach. I'd bet that virtually all of our institutions sponsor faculty development courses or seminars on teaching skills. If your home institution doesn't, there are a lot of CME courses sponsored by other universities, the AAMC, the ACGME, or other organizations. The ATS has had several PG courses and symposia on teaching skills or career advancement for educators at the international meeting, including this year. There's even a MOOC from the University of Michigan on teaching skills. For my fellows and junior faculty who want to be educators, I recommend they consider getting a master's in health professional education. There are about 70 universities that offer degree or certificate programs in medical education, many of them largely completed online. These courses and programs vary in their emphasis and time commitment, but cover topics like adult learning theory, curriculum design, teaching in small groups or at the bedside, assessment of learners, or educational research. 
They give someone the skills and credibility to declare themselves an educator and bring something to the table that other faculty lack. They then become the expert who trains the other trainers, the person people come to for advice on how to give feedback or deal with other issues. Another important step is to find mentors. We recognize this as essential for research careers. It's equally important for a career as an educator. Mentors can help make career decisions, make introductions, suggest their mentee for committee or leadership opportunities, and point out the minefields they should avoid. A corollary of mentorship is community. In your division, you may be one of only a few people on the clinician educator path, but it's likely that every division and department have a few people like you toiling away in lonely isolation. Reach out to them. The ATS is a newly formed section on medical education. Attend their meeting at the International Conference and find kindred spirits at other hospitals. Join some committees that focus on education at your medical school, like the GME Committee, or at the ATS, the Training Committee, MIT, or the Education Committee. Finally, and most importantly, do scholarly work and disseminate it. That's the lingua franca of academia. You may feel good getting rave evaluations from the house staff, but unless you make an impact beyond your home institution and document it, your career will stay right where it is today. And more importantly, your potential contributions to the field will be stillborn. Educational research is the most obvious approach with parallels to a researcher's career, but the methods of educational research are very different from biomedical research, and you probably didn't learn them in fellowship. It's qualitative behavioral science research. There are rarely any randomized trials. You need to find collaborators, or go back to that faculty development step I was talking about a minute ago. But research is not the only way to contribute. Review papers, book chapters, and case series provide education about medicine. These are usually just considered filler for a researcher's CV, but they're more valuable for an educator. Better still, write about education. There are a dozen or so medical education journals, of which academic medicine is the best known. Our journal, the Annals of the ATS, has a recurring series on medical education, and of course, we just published our first med-ed theme issue. I was very impressed with the quantity and quality of our submissions. Curricula and educational materials can be published, particularly on the Internet. MedEd Portal is the best-known repository for peer-reviewed educational products. If your school or division hosts a website where you can post your own educational material, you can probably collect page hits or downloads to demonstrate your impact. If you join committees, be alert for opportunities for scholarship. The ATS Education Committee, for example, writes papers summarizing aspects of the MOC curriculum. If you're an active contributor to the committee work, you may get asked to join a task force or lead the committee. At the ATS, propose symposia or PG courses. Even if yours is not selected, you get to introduce yourself to other scholars when you're planning your program, and then your name starts to pop up in the program planning committee. That's more networking. If you lead an educational program, like a course or a fellowship, try to collect data on its success. How does it do in the match? How do your graduates fare? Have other programs adopted some of your ideas? Program building is another measure of impact. The expanding regulations that govern medical education at all levels are onerous. They are the worst parts of my job. But the bright side is they've created a career niche for those who have the stomach for them, like you and me, Dean. They may have even improved medical education, but that's another podcast. Pay attention when openings for awards are announced. Educational awards from trainees or institutions are valued by promotions committees. These might be local awards, like the Best Resident Teacher, 
or they may come from national organizations, the ACGME, the ATS, the Program Directors Association, or others. Self-nominate, or ask your division director to nominate you. The bottom line is there are lots of ways for clinician educators to develop themselves and develop their careers. I think it's a very exciting time to pursue this path. It's always been risky, and there have always been people who find themselves stuck. But spend a few minutes talking to your researcher colleagues, and you'll realize that this is not unique to our track. What's new for us is the rigor, the science that has come to medical education. This career is increasingly defined not by doing a set of tasks, but by having a set of skills. The rewards of working with young trainees and helping them advance has always been the main reason I do this. That sort of thing has always been appreciated by our trainees. Increasingly, it'll be appreciated and rewarded by our institutions. Oh, that's great advice. And that will do it for this podcast of, for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society for April 2015. I'm Dr. Dean Schroffnagel. Thanks to Dr. Fessler, and thank you for listening.